This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you listen. New episodes come out every other Friday. I'd like to welcome everyone um, to today's talk uh, that we've called Power Play Russia and Ukraine. I'm Susan Hoffman, the director of UC Berkeley's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. I'm very glad that you could join us today. Um, we'd like to mention that this particular video will be posted sometime shortly um, with captions and available for you to forward to friends and colleagues we're interested in continuing the dialogue. We also know that our UC Berkeley News will be preparing a podcast um, of this conversation. Um, generally, what we do is we will have, or in this particular instance, we will have our two um, speakers um, both talk. I will ask questions of both of them. They will also have questions of each other. And then um, we will introduce a special guest today uh, from the Congressional Office of International Relations, Jane Sargas, who will um, give a bit of a Washington perspective from her Congressional Office, which deals with the emerging leadership from the post-Soviet nations. Um, then we'll go to the chat room. We uh, expect, if we have time, that the chat room will be full of your questions we're going to look at those questions and try to aggregate them the best we can so that uh, if some information is not touched upon, we do manage to get that area covered. If not, um, one of the things that we've been discussing within the staff is whether or not to hold a set of conversations later among the OLLI membership um, on the questions that will be emerging ongoingly. One of the people who was invited to speak today who could not join us is retired Rear Admiral uh, Dr. Michael Baker. He has prepared a five-minute video talking about the liminal war that is likely to be um, ongoing, um, and I, we will want to share that with uh, the Ali membership um, at, a, at a future time, hopefully next week. So with that, I'd like to introduce... Dr. George Breslauer, who's been a UC Berkeley professor since 1971. Twelve of those years, he served as provost for the university. He is the author and editor of 13 books on the USSR, the post-Soviet Russia, and the evolution of communism around the world. He also has a recent book through Oxford Press that's called The Rise and Demise of World Communism, which was published last year. In the Osher Institute's winter term, Dr. Breslauer taught Russia under Putin as an encore course this winter. And in the spring term, he will teach an eight week course called Great Leadership. George, I'm glad you could join us. Would you please start? Thank you, Susan. And thank you for inviting me. Um, <clears throat> well, what we're witnessing, of course, is, is a tragedy. Uh, the full-scale uh, invasion of, uh, of Ukraine by Russian armed forces uh, was the, the maximalist expectation uh, of what Putin might do, and I think is a reflection of his 
having in recent months decided that before he retires or leaves office, uh, that he is going to solve the Ukrainian problem as he defines it. Um, the, we're watching this, this um, war from the comfort our, of our living rooms, and our hearts have to go out to the Ukrainian people who are taking all the punishment and are suffering uh, as a result of this invasion. Uh, that said, uh, I have to argue uh, and have long believed that this was an avoidable tragedy. Uh, let me read you a quote from Vladimir Putin. Uh, he said, we view the appearance of a powerful military bloc on our borders as a direct threat to the security of our country. The claim that this process is not directed against Russia will not suffice. National security is not based on promises, unquote. Putin said that publicly in 2008, close to 14 years ago. Uh, and he, a, a refrain of that by him and by his foreign minister has been ongoing ever since. Now, you could respond, oh, NATO's not going to invade Russia. Why the paranoia? Well, that's not how state leaders think. Think back to 1960, 61, even before the Cuban Missile Crisis, how the very fact of a communist regime in Cuba was defined as a national security threat to the United States, 90 miles from our shore. So if you have a bit of empathy in international relations about how others are likely to, to define your behavior, however you, you intended it to be defined, uh, you'll realize that that this kind of um, proximity of a major, uh, major antagonistic bloc is something that Russian leaders are going to process as a threat, whether you feel the inclination to invade them or not. Now, ever since that, ever since 2007, actually, Putin and his foreign minister have been reiterating that. For the last year or two, they have been calling upon Washington and the Western uh, countries to, to engage in a dialogue about redefining the European security architecture, by which they meant trying to get NATO and Western Europe and Eastern Europe and the United States to rethink their approach to Russian foreign policy and their approach to Russia's relations with its neighbors on the basis of and a willingness to concede that Russia has the right to have security concerns, minimally. That's what they were calling for. They got very little response to that, if any. And so last fall, uh, Putin threw down the gauntlet and he said, uh, these are my two demands. One, that NATO forswear ever allowing Ukraine to join NATO. And two, that uh, that the forward positioning of troops in NATO countries that are closest to Russia uh, should be drawn back. Uh, I think the second was a throwaway. He, I don't think he expected to see that degree of accommodation, but this was his way of throwing down the gauntlet. And so we started diplomatic discussions because Putin was starting to show signs that he was mobilizing troops. 
And those diplomatic discussions, however, began with the proposition that neither of Putin's two demands was acceptable to even consider. They were just brushed off or blown away. But then Russia was told to take the diplomatic paths, but not to discuss those two demands and see whether Putin would accommodate on other things that maybe would satisfy him. Well, after a few months of this, he, he realized that he was getting nowhere, the diplomatic path, and that he would not tolerate at least one of these two demands being discussed seriously. And that's the backdrop. Now, many of us have argued in the past that NATO expansion into Ukraine and before Georgia um, as propositions for the future uh, was never going to be acceptable to Moscow and was going to be dangerous. And in 2008, they demonstrated the danger. Moscow went to war with Georgia in 2008, shortly after uh, those discussions in NATO that called for preparing Ukraine and Georgia for eventual NATO membership. I personally think the only stable equilibrium in the future, and I've been arguing this for a while and others argued it even before me, would be the model of the Austrian State Treaty of 1955, which basically called for the formal neutralization of the country. And that way, saying that it won't join NATO is not ceding it to a Russian sphere of influence. It is rather saying it will neither be in NATO nor be in the Russian sphere of influence. It will be left alone in that regard with respect to its foreign policy. Uh, I've been arguing that up to a few weeks ago. After yesterday's and the day before's events, uh, I think that may be tragically off the table. Uh, This could have been avoided. Uh, Putin has now shown his worst instincts. He has shown his dark side, uh, taking no prisoners in this attack on Ukraine. Um, And I just hope that he is retrievable toward a diplomatic compromise that calls for no Ukraine in NATO and no ceding to the Russian sphere of influence, formal neutralization. But we'll see if that is even possible uh, in light of what's going on now. Thank you. Yes, George, thank you very much. Um, Let me introduce our other colleague, Yuri Gorodnichenko, who is here in the Berkeley Economics Department and has been at Berkeley for 15 years. He's an associate professor of economics, specializing in finance and macroeconomics. Um, uh, uh, Yuri spoke at the Osher Institute in 2014, following the then Russian invasion of uh, Crimea in Ukraine. And so, Yuri, welcome. Thank you for being back with us. What I'd like to do um, is um, perhaps bring George back on the screen. Um, and and talk a little bit, uh, George, about what you've just said, and to say um, to ask the following: What what is the intended goal? Um, I mean, there's been controversy about that. What does he What does he think he can achieve with this invasion? Uh, well, I think he thinks he can achieve the goal of. Um, making it impossible for Ukraine to join NATO, uh, perhaps 
um, I, I don't know day to day how his thinking may have evolved, but perhaps to try to install a puppet regime in Kiev. Uh, he certainly, when, when he says, as he said the other day, we're going to demilitarize uh, Ukraine, um, that sounds like somebody who's determined to destroy all of Ukraine's military capabilities. When he says we're going to denazify Ukraine, that, that's even more ominous because that suggests he's going to go after entire groups of civilians that he defines he defines in odious terms, actually. But uh, uh, what, you know, what strikes me about the Western reaction these days when I turn on CNN and other channels and listen to uh, people being interviewed about this is the uh, is the allegations that people seem to be able to look into Putin's brain and say he's actually next going to go after Eastern Europe militarily or go after the Baltic states militarily. I've seen, well, first of all, I let me say uh, I, I don't buy into the argument because he hasn't been talking in those terms for the last 14 years about the East European or Baltic NATO countries. Uh, and I, I do question those who argue confidently that that is his intention because they have no basis for knowing uh, what's really on his mind. But to me, the evidence suggests that his goal here is to suffocate the sovereignty of Ukraine. Do you think that um, there was any anticipation that there would be the suggestion of guerrilla war attack? of asking uh, the Ukrainian people to stay inside and prepare their Molotov cocktails? Yeah, you know, um, that that has always been um, a possibility. Uh, Guerrilla warfare against a Russian occupation uh, would probably happen. Uh, We would have to see whether it is Putin's intention to, you know, leave 150,000 troops in Ukraine and try to control it with that, but you know, they, he has shown no intention to be to play nice, and so sending missiles into crowded cities uh, is a willingness to incur uh, unlimited Ukrainian civilian casualties. Uh, drone warfare and other types of of new technologies might be usable against guerrilla warfare. Uh, Withdrawing most of your troops is another way to re- react to the threat of guerrilla warfare. Um, so we'll we'll see. Uh, I'm not optimistic that guerrilla warfare would would uh, blunt the fundamental goal of Putin's, and that is to to suffocate Ukrainian sovereignty and um, uh, Ukrainian ability to seek a Western uh, military umbrella. Let's, Yuri, I want to bring you into the next question as well. Um, and that is, uh, so, so George's perspective is that we've missed the opportunity um, to uh, create a neutralization or a neutral Ukraine. Um, do you think, is that, is that conceivable uh, now? I guess, George, you were saying you, you weren't certain. But what what would neutralization even look like? And what would be the Ukrainians' response um, to such an idea? And so, Yuri, I'll, I'll go to you. You know, I'll say a few facts and then give my perspective. 
And so I want to make uh, clear that there is something subjective and something which is objective. Finland is a neutral country. It had three wars with the Soviet Union and Russia in the 20th century. So neutralization does not help with preventing wars. That's number one. Number two, when we think about why World War II started, um, Hitler also had all sorts of security concerns and he had demands for this and that. He had a special place for Ukraine in his Mein Kampf. He, had, he said, this is going to be a Lebensraum, a living space for Germans that's going to create the breadbasket for the Third Reich. Um, I don't want, you know, does it make sense to negotiate with Hitler? We know it was pointless. You know, all the attempts to appease him ended up in a much worse uh, disaster. Many people perished. And, uh, you know, given everything that uh, Putin have done and said in his lifetime, I see very little reason to believe that he is serious about having peace. That's number one. Number two. Number three, I, I should say that Ukraine aspired uh, to NATO not because, <clears throat> you know, it really wanted this from day one. Uh, it inspired uh, it aspired to join NATO after 2004 when Ukraine had the first Maidan revolution. And it was very clear that Russians are going to take over the country. In 2014, it became an existential question for the country because it was very clear that if you can annex Crimea and invade a part of the Donbass, then uh, the only way you can protect yourself against a very big neighbor is to have some umbrella, some insurance, and that NATO is an ultimate umbrella, ultimate insurance, ultimate protection. The reason why we have war today in Ukraine and not in Poland is because Poland is in NATO and Ukraine isn't. And in terms of, you know, what is happening, you know, is Putin going to stop there uh, in Ukraine or if he's going to continue? I would say this. You know, the Soviet Union invaded uh, Czechoslovakia in 1968. It was not the other way around. The Czech soldiers, the Slovaks did not march in the Kremlin. The Soviet Union invaded Hungary in 1956. The Hungarians never had a parade, military parade in Moscow, right? So we just need to understand that the, the source of aggression is not coming from Eastern Europe towards Russia. You know, these countries are scared. Think about this. This is my personal perspective now. Think about this as a relationship between a husband and a wife. The husband is very abusive. The wife wants to run away. You know, he beats up the wife and blames her for not cooking well, for not cleaning her house well. And, you know, when the wife is trying to escape, he pulls out a gun and starts shooting her. The neighbors are looking at this and just believe they say, no, it's totally crazy. You can't do that. It's barbaric. Okay? But the wife, you know, at least some of the wives, can crawl away into safety. To safety. And this is the reason why NATO is not uh, a source of problems. You know, the source of problems is somewhere else. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that's been suggested is that it's, and I think uh, George's example is apt around Cuba, it's, it is as much the threat um, of a different, a different system, a different worldview, that in this instance, um, and Yuri, I'll start with you. Do you think so this is more about the threat of liberal democracy next door? You know, it's really, I, I agree with George. It's really hard to get into his mind. And if I pretend that I know what is going on in his head, I would be, you know, hugely um, 
overstating <clears throat> my knowledge. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, my firm belief is that Ukraine is, uh, as a successful country, as a free country, will be a major threat uh, to Putin. And I see this in the Ukrainian experience. The reason why Ukraine wants to become a better country, a free country, a part of the EU, is because it has the experience of Poland. Right? We see Poland being a very successful country. Economically, it's a part of the EU. It's a stable country. It has protection from the Russian invasion. We want to be like them, right? There is no reason, there is no fundamental reason why the Polish people and the Ukrainian people are the different. And so then when you ask politicians, how come we have this you know, misery and you know, war and everything? How is it possible in our soil when just across the border we have this success story? And I think, you know, Putin realizes that if Ukraine is a successful country, people will question him. You know, how come, you know, we in Moscow or Nizhny Novgorod or St. Petersburg, why are we living in this crazy state? Well, we can be free and travel anywhere and enjoy, you know, peaceful, successful lives. And we don't need the Tsar or anything like this to, to control our lives. But as I said, you know, this is my personal opinion. I don't know if it's really uh, the main uh, factor in his thinking, uh, but I think it's, it is something important. George? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to uh, just register uh, my belief that the Hitler analogy is misplaced. Hitler had a plan for conquering Europe. He signaled it in advance. And within, you know, a two to three year period, he was marching on uh, the Rhineland, Austria, Czechoslovakia, then Poland. Um, uh, I, I, I think a better analogy, if you're looking for historical analogies, would be Stalin's posture regarding Eastern Europe, where the Red Army was positioned after, after uh, driving Hitler out of, uh, out of World War II, uh, and having a determination at that time to uh, create a uh, cordon sanitaire, a buffer zone in Eastern Europe against, um, against future contingencies that he couldn't anticipate. I see this as Ukraine being an analogous buffer zone between uh, Russia and NATO. But George, isn't it um, expansionist? Um, or it, we, there's been much comment about uh, Putin's desire to reconstitute the USSR, mother Russia. And so um, isn't that part of the calculation? Well, you know, you'd have to believe that Putin has a uh, delusional notion of Russian capabilities uh, to think that uh, he could reconstitute the USSR. I mean, basically, to, to put it with a quip in these, in these difficult times, uh, one down, 13 to go. Uh, I think he is more realistic than that. But as I said, I, I can't say what, what is in the inner depths of his mind. But uh, the the reconstitution of the USSR is is I think pretty far fetched. Um, Belarus and Ukraine now as sort of vassal regimes. Uh, there I think that's where his th his thinking is now has now headed. As I said before, I don't think it had to go that far, but I think that's that's sort of the limits of his thinking. I I, I severely doubt that someone as realistic as he is about Russian military capability, is, is going to take, uh, take on NATO by attacking Poland mm -hmm. out of the Baltic states. 
you know, I think we're in uncharted territory around his intentions, partly from, from the point of view, his profile that you give would suggest that um, why, why invade Ukraine as well? <laughs> you know, we're, we're, it's, it's going to be very, very messy. Let's, let's get into just some speculation. And I know um, there's a lot of talk about this right now um, around um, maybe some things that are unintended consequences of, of the invasion. Um, it certainly has brought uh, the NATO-aligned nations together. You know, they're, they're, they're in lockstep with each other. Um, it's shown Biden's leadership in a very powerful way. Um, and, you know, it's, it's surprising um, to see the protests uh, across Russia. Um, and so, so, and that seems to be, that was surprising to them, that they thought that they, that they had more of their own population behind such a maneuver. And so, um, Yuri or George, could you speak to that? Um, is this... Is this the tip of an iceberg of dissent or just a lonely minority, the people who are protesting in Europe? I mean, in Russia. Well, um, it's hard to say at this point. Um, we've had waves of protests in Russia um, in, in the last 10, 10 12 years. And uh, um, they have they've been honorable. Um, uh, with all the right values, but they have been crushed. Uh, the The bulk of the protests, even though they, they were across Russia, but the bulk of the people who protested in the last day uh, were in Moscow and St. Petersburg, where you have highly educated young people who tend to be uh, much more alienated from the, uh, the, Putin, uh, the Putin regime. Uh, I... I just don't know how far down that iceberg you can go in tapping into not only sentiments, but also willingness to take personal risks by going out and protesting. This is a highly repressive authoritarian regime. Saw a figure this morning, which may be out of date already, that 1,652 people have been detained, meaning arrested, for protesting the war in Russia. Um, We'll, we'll see. Uh, it may go the route of the previous protests, and that is basically uh, die out. Uh, let's stay with this resistance theme a little bit longer. And Yuri, um, let's talk. Tell us what you know about the U- Ukrainian resistance. Right. So I think, you know, one thing which is clear is that Ukraine is not going to give up easily. It's going to fight. And um, when the President Zelensky gave a speech just before the invasion and said, look, you're not going to see our backs, you will see our faces, because we will fight you. And um, it is also very clear that, you know, this fight between Russia and Ukraine on Ukrainian soil is not lopsided. You, you know, Ukrainians kill many, many Russian soldiers. And I think for many people in Russia, uh, this may bring memories of Afghanistan when lots of people died in Afghanistan. It was an extremely unpopular war. The Soviet Union was even more repressive than the Putin regime. 
And yet, you know, Afghanistan contributed, I would say, significantly to the demise of the Soviet Union because people were really, really unhappy about that war, seeing dead bodies, seeing all the wounded. And um, as far as I can tell, uh, talking to my friends and my family, there is a lot of determination in Ukraine to, uh, to keep fighting. Even if Russia occupies the country, there will be resistance. Maybe it will be underground. So many, many Russians will die. And I think many people in Russia understand that this is not going to be an easy end for anybody. And, you know, if they bring war to Ukrainian, uh, to the Ukrainian soil, I, it will be terrible. But, you know, wars are impossible to control. It will spill over into Russia as well. Therefore, then, leads a question um, about the they are fighting for um, the identity of the Ukrainians. It's been Putin's been very dismissive <laughs> that this is not really a national identity uh, that right. Ukrainians hold. So, could you speak to that? A bit? Of course, yeah, I'll be happy to <clears throat> to do this. Um, you know, George uh, said earlier that he is uncomfortable with comparisons to Hitler and he prefers Stalin. Um, either way, you know, we're choosing between one mad person and another mad person, very unpleasant people. Um, you know, Ukraine has been independent intermittently for many, many years. Uh, it has a rich culture, obviously, we're culturally connected to, uh, to uh uh, to Russia, but saying we are the same will be a gross over exaggeration of uh, similarities between um, uh, these two people. So we have different languages. Uh, people often ask me, what's the difference between Russian and Ukrainian? And I say it's, you know, say Dutch and German or Portuguese and Spanish. You kind of roughly get an idea of what people are saying, but they're not the same languages. And so we have very very significant differences. And the claim made by Russia, uh, by Putin, that Ukraine does not deserve its state, it's artificial. Uh, this is what brings me back to Hitler, that you know Hitler was equally free in deciding the fate of other nations and saying, you deserve to leave and you don't deserve to leave. We, live, we deserve to be a slave. And in the one thing which is very clear is that Ukraine was a part of the Russian empire for many years. And and Ukrainians always wanted to have a separate state for many, many centuries. And so all this talk about, you know, should Ukraine be a part of that or part of this without asking Ukrainians strikes me as, as very insensitive and against the spirit of our time. We have self-determination of nations. We should determine our future ourselves. We should not depend on Putin or NATO or anything like this. If Stalin wanted to have a buffer zone, he committed millions of people to misery for many, many decades. And it's only when the Berlin Wall fell, people were liberated and we had the spring of Europe again. Uh, so Yuri, another two-part question. I want to stay with this for a little bit longer. Um, so is there then a chance, I uh, take this, this a little bit further, to say that the invasion might unify Ukraine um, that's been divided? along ethnic and linguistic lines? You know, I, I must say, you know, this idea about linguistic lines, you know, Russians versus Ukrainians inside Ukraine, this is utter nonsense. My half of my family is from Eastern Ukraine, another half is from um, Central Ukraine. We, we speak Russian and, and um, 
and Ukrainian equally well. There was never a problem of, you know, abusing Russians or Russians abusing Ukrainians. The idea that there is Western Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine and somehow they're in this eternal conflict between each other, that's nonsense. We never had this. People were one people in one country. It was greatly, greatly blown out of proportions and saying, okay, this is why, you know, we have this war. It's, it's not true. My, my, uh, my, uh, my mom grew up in the part of Eastern Ukraine, which is now um, effectively occupied by the, by the Russians. I spent every summer there. Uh, I know many Russians, and it was totally fine. We were, you know, friends, colleagues. It was not a problem. So you anticipate that there won't be as strong of a di- division that some are projecting with the ethnic Russians and uh, the Ukraine state? I, you know, maybe people in Western Ukraine, because they spent more time in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they were less repressed, so they had more freedoms over the years. They feel uh, more um, strongly about the Ukrainian identity. Maybe they will have a stronger motivation to fight, and you see, uh, fight, and you see this in the polls and other objective data. Uh, but I, I think this idea that this is a civil war of some kind, an internal conflict, this is not true. None of this would happen if Russia was uh, not in Ukraine. Um, Yuri, I see that there are some comments coming into the chat room. I and just, I think, sort of echoing George's sentiment, we are really sorry um, that this is happening to people you know and to your country. Um, I want to now um, shift the topic areas to uh, the economic sanctions. And just your own personal assessment as someone who's in finance and macroeconomics, um, how, what do you think the impact of these economic sanctions are going to be? And and part of it, there's been some holes, you know, uh, just one, one hole I'll mention. Uh, The CNN commentator, Aaron McLaughlin, um, just said, but she was surprised at the choice of the five families that were being targeted for um, uh, uh, for these sanctions. And she said, these aren't people who are, are really at the top. And so, um, so at any rate, are we targeting the right things? And um, what do you think, uh, what do you think will happen? Well, so I think, you know, some sanctions are good. You know, there has to be a price. Nobody can violate sovereignty of another country um, so blatantly. There is no question about that. Are the sanctions effective? You know, the the targeted sanctions are good because they single out and call out people and say what you do is bad. Uh, But we should all understand that, you know, Russia is a big country with lots of players, and uh, this is going to have a very limited effect. Think about this in the following way. Suppose you get a call from your bank and this bank says, we're going to cancel your credit card or cancel your account. It's annoying. It's painful, right? But you can go to another bank and open another account, get another credit card. So in the big scheme of sense, it's not really affecting your behavior. This is what we see with Russian sanctions today. They are so, so poor. So many things can be done to avoid them. 
And I understand, you know, why they do this. They, they want to keep uh, oil and gas flowing out of Russia. It makes sense. But we should understand that also that this the sanctions are not very effective. You have to have a blanket punishments of some type. And again, if you want to have some analogies, and maybe George will, will, uh, will say more here, he's a real expert um, on, on, on this. Uh, we, we saw when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, there, there was a lot of uh, punishment on, on the Soviet Union, right? So you can't import technology, you can't sell wheat. Uh, it seemed like it's a joke, but you know, over time, it teared down, worn out the, the, the empire, right? So it was technologically falling behind more and more and more. And so the sanctions will work in the long run, at least some of them. Um, but you know, the situation is very, very fluid. It's decided you know, every hour. And uh, if 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 we have this discrepancy between uh, the impact of the sanctions and and the calculus of the decisions, it's very clear that you know it's not going to change Putin's mind. You know, maybe it will send a signal, but fundamentally, it's not going to change anything. In right now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. George, I, I agree that um, that the sanctions are not going to change Putin's strategy within. Ukraine. Uh, That said, I think if you broaden your perspective and you ask, you ask regarding economic sanctions, when you're dealing with a country that whose leadership defines it as a great power and who feels hugely aggrieved, um, will they, in order to avoid an economic pinch, be willing to compromise what they have chosen to define? as their national security interests. And my, my answer to that would be, you know, whether you're talking about Russia or another, con- another country in history or today, my answer would be no. They will not. They will not. Economic sanctions will not change their fundamental approach to Ukraine. But look what's on, <laughs> what's in store. If, in fact, I... Uh, Putin is interested in establishing a puppet regime in Ukraine. Can he do that and economic sanctions and understanding the levels of poverty that exist currently? Um, You're referring to poverty in Russia? (laughs) Or, or I'm just, I'm saying that there is so much that is, you know, I know in some sense, you know, people have made the argument that, that the invasion is partly to get the focus off of the domestic issues for Putin. But if you have all of these things uh, that are points of contention, um, doesn't that yeah. not vote well? <laughs> well, basically your question is, is Putin uh, tearing off more than he can chew? Right. Um, and, uh, I, I think he's sensitive to that, and that's part of the reason that I I doubt he he would you know pile on by now going after the Baltic states or East European NATO members. That would be enormously risky, and that's why I believe that that um, uh, he, his focus is Ukraine. And you know, bear in mind that when he first started complaining about NATO vis-a-vis Ukraine and uh, Georgia. Uh, back in 2007, um, the Russian economy was in good shape. It wasn't a distraction from domestic woes. And and since there has been a steady drumbeat 
of these complaints uh, coming out of Moscow. I, I don't attribute it to um, to Putin trying to deflect attention from domestic woes. Okay, well let's let's bring China into this equation. Uh, there were there was some military uh, um, anticipation. I, I hear that. Putin was going to wait until after the Olympics to invade Ukraine. And that that was partly a kind of deal that was struck with China. Um, Does China owe him a debt that can be repaid by helping him in this situation and around the nations? I'm thinking about, you know, the uh, congressional, uh, the person from Michigan, who said, you know, these sanctions are really going to hurt. Um, and then sort of us thinking, you know, isn't China one of the one of the avenues for the supply chain that might lessen the impact on Russia? Your comments, what what is what debt <laughs> will he be incurring? Well, I can start. I know George doesn't like comparisons to Hitler, but I would say, <laughs> you know, Hitler and Stalin were trading with each other until the very last moment. They were helping each other. You know, the Soviet Union was sending raw materials to Germany, Nazi Germany, and uh, Germany were sending back technology and, you know, uh, know-how, so to say, uh, to the Soviet Union. And uh, everybody was hoping that, you know, well, you know, Stalin was hoping probably that uh, uh, Nazi Germany is going to defeat uh, Great Britain and uh, maybe at that point it will be exhausted and the Soviet uh, Union can win the war. I don't know. Um, but I think we should appreciate that, you know, if two authoritarian regimes uh, team up with each other, we have to be very, very careful. That's another reason why not responding to Putin now is a very bad idea because if Putin can get away with this, why China can't get away with something else? Right. I would add, um, I would add that uh, if there was a deal struck in, in Beijing, and I have no way of knowing, um, it probably had to do with China's economic power being brought to bear to help Russia offset some of the sanctions. Um, more troubling is the political issue, the political military issue, and that is whether China views this, uh, if it is not reversed, and I can't see it being reversed, this invasion, um, uh, as, as a carte blanche for it to, to uh, attack Taiwan. Um, the, a former student of mine emailed me late last night to say that she is following the Chinese press and that uh, in China, they're they're saying that this is a Russian, a matter of Russia's internal affairs, which if you want to make a scary interpretation of that statement, it's basically saying uh, that uh, if a country defines an adjacent country as uh, as pretty much of its own, uh, as as Putin has done to justify his invasion. Uh, that, that helps China's argument with respect to Taiwan, uh, where it has argued that all along. Uh, now, now the question is whether, uh, whether China wants to take that on because the U.S. willingness 
I mean, the fundamental difference is the U.S. is willing to defend Taiwan and the U.S. and NATO are not willing militarily to go to the mat militarily with Russia in Ukraine. George, I don't think we know that U.S. is willing to defend Taiwan. How do we know this? Have we tested it? I don't think so. And, you know, the idea is that you have this constructive ambiguity. The U.S. never committed to defending Taiwan with nuclear weapons or anything like this. Right? So, but there is this understanding that this may or may not happen. And if, if you look at Ukraine that gave up its nuclear weapons in 1994, the largest, the third largest nuclear arsenal in exchange of guarantees from the U.S., U.K., and Russia to protect sovereign, uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity. And now Russia is clearly violating this. And all the guarantor countries, U.S. and the U.K., are not really doing much of anything. Then uh, how do we know that U.S. is going to defend Taiwan or Japan or South Korea or, or Baltic countries. Like, you know, do, do we really want to have Americans die for uh, Estonia? How do we know that? So, Yuri, are you arguing that we ought to be sending troops to help Ukraine? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that Ukraine will defend itself, but it will need more support from the West, from the free world. And, you know, the wars are extremely costly. You have to buy supplies, you have to buy food, you have to have fuel, you have to have weapons. Right, so Ukraine is a small country, and uh, if it's left to its own devices, it, it will fight for a long time, maybe, maybe not, mm-hmm. but it needs help for sure. Mm-hmm. And so this will be one thing you can do to change the calculus for other countries that may contemplate aggressions against other countries. You know, I think um, we know that the UN Security Council, where Russia has a veto vote, that the UN is not going to be a player in this issue, but NATO, is there, is there anything more that one might expect from NATO? You, Yuri, you're saying no? I, I you know, I, I, I must say I'm very saddened by the reaction of the United Nations. This organization was created to protect peace, okay? And uh, it was also a response to the failure of the League of Nations, Right. So that was similar to the United Nations created after the First World War. The League of Nations failed to preserve peace in Asia when Japan invaded Manchuria. It failed to prevent uh, a war between the Soviet Union and Finland. It failed to prevent war between Germany and its neighboring countries. And as far as I can tell, the United Nations is going down this path when you, know, you have an international talking point you know, a meeting place, people express their concerns, but there is very little action. It, it's hard to imagine that something like, you know, the Korean war response can happen now when there was an international military force organized to uh, fight off the aggression from the North Korea or the Kuwait-Iraq war when it was very clear that Iraq invaded a sovereign country for no particular reason, no good reason. And that then we had an international response, right? So the United Nations got it acts together, raised to the occasion, and defended Kuwait. I don't see this happening now. Yeah, I understand that disappointment. I I want to stay with economic sanctions just for a moment more, um, and and bring to kind of self-interest, um, NATO nations, the United States. Even the New York Times today was positing how California 
will be affected uh, uh, by uh, what is likely to come from Russia around cyber attacks on our on various systems of water, electric grid, etc. Um, <clears throat> can you say anything more around what you might be contemplating around the impact uh, that sanctions and then the counterattack from Russia? Yuri, would, would you say a few words about that? Yes, I think, you know, we, we should understand that sanctions have a cost not only for Russia, but also a cost for the world that imposes this. And, uh, you know, it's understandable. It's, it's painful. It's costly. But we should also understand that short-term pain is going to be followed by long-term gain, right? So think about the peace dividend that happened after the end of the Cold War. Right, so lots and lots of resources uh, for various governments were uh, uh, redirected to more productive uses. Right, you can spend more on education, on healthcare, and many other useful things. You don't have to create weapons all the time. The space dividend is a huge, huge amount of money, a ton, a mountain. I, I, I don't have, you know, I don't know how many zeros that number is going to be, but you know, various estimates of the Cold War suggest that. It was astronomically expensive. And so when we think about this calculus, you know, we can make sacrifices. Now, I know it's easy for me to say this now, but, you know, we should think about this long term. There is a short term cost. It may last a year, maybe, I don't know, two years. But if we preserve peace for the next 30, 50 years, it will overwhelm any short term losses we can have today. Uh, George, further comment on that? Well, because I've declared that I don't think that economic sanctions are going to change Putin's behavior in Ukraine, um, then the question becomes, what would? And if the only answer is a military confrontation, then everybody has to decide for themselves whether they are willing to risk nuclear war, because that is really what a military confrontation between NATO and Russia would be um, would be risking. Um, you you could argue nuclear war is so unthinkable to both sides that that no nobody would go that far. But in in a context of of actual military combat uh, between two powerful militaries, um, the fog of war is such that one can easily imagine even an accidental nuclear launch. So I think, um, you know, while, while I, I feel the pain of the Ukrainian people um, and have been trying to avoid this for years by arguing for um, a neutralization, um, at the same time, we have to decide what level of risk we're willing to incur uh, in order to over and above the economic sanctions and whatever blowback and pain they engender. Uh, we, we have to decide how much otherwise risk we're willing to incur for the sake of um, freeing Ukraine from Russia's assault. Now, I hope Yuri is right that um, the Ukrainians can defend themselves. Uh, I don't know whether uh, large-scale transfer to Ukraine of military equipment uh, by the NATO countries in order to help them defend themselves is something that would um, would blunt the Russian attack uh, or would uh, lead it to escalate toward a confrontation um, between NATO and Russia. 
you know, I, I agree that the prospect of a nuclear war is terrifying. As somebody who grew up in the Soviet Union and as a child had to do um, nuclear drills, when you go to, you know, the basement and you put gas masks, it's terrifying. But I would say that the, the prospect of, you know, something happening in this atomic nuclear sphere is, is much closer than I think many people think. There are reports that the Russians occupy, well, captured the Chernobyl. Who's going to control this radioactive materials? They threaten to shell a nuclear power plant. You can have another Chernobyl, you know, maybe this evening, maybe tomorrow. Who is going to stop that? Nobody. And then the radioactive cloud is not going to make any difference. Uh, is, is not going to distinguish between national borders if you're a NATO country or if you're Sweden. Everybody's going to be covered in this. So we should understand that the, the prospect of, you know, what happens in Ukraine, what is happening in Ukraine, it, it's not just about Ukraine. It, it, it's much bigger. You know, the, 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 the ripples will be felt everywhere. It will be felt everywhere. I will say, Susan, that... Um that uh, if Putin's goal is to establish a puppet regime in Kiev, uh, he may be able to do that for a short period of time, but a regime has to govern. And uh, that, will be, that will be a very great challenge to uh, keep, keep the Ukrainian polity, as it were, quiet um, uh, if he is trying to have a vassal regime in Kiev. We'll see. What I'd like to do right now in, in sort of the remaining uh, seven minutes that we have together is invite the executive director, Jane uh, Sargas, to join us. As I mentioned earlier, she's with the Congressional Office for International Leadership. I hope she is still online. There she is. Uh, welcome, Jane. Um, we know that you work with an organization that was established after the breakup of the Soviet Union, that you host uh, the post-Soviet states and their emerging leaders. And so your your point of view um, is really welcome. Please Thank you. comment or, or question you want to ask. Thanks, Susan. I, I, first of all, COIL, we are Congressional Office for International Leadership. Um, our hearts go out to all Ukrainians. Uh, we have uh, been hosting um, the rising leaders of Ukraine and Russia since 2000. Our agency has nearly 30,000 alumni in the post-Soviet states. And we work for Congress. So the rising leaders that we bring over spend time meeting congressional members and their staff. And they're able to bring to the table what concerns them and what makes them happy. Um, those conversations give Congress an unfiltered access to um, the thinking from these countries. We have 20,000 alumni in Russia. These people love their work. They love their country. They're very peaceful people. And we have 4,000 plus alumni in Ukraine. They are the same. And the conflict that we have is managing to continue a program in these two countries that doesn't inflict pain on the other side. We are challenged by several um, 
obstacles, um, not the least of which is COVID and vaccines, but the, the, this war has now created another layer. I spent all day yesterday with 19 Ukrainians who had arrived um, to um, start programs on uh, veterans affairs and um, um, post-war trauma. And uh, they arrived Tuesday night and had left a peaceful country and woke up the next day to um, war. It was a challenge to provide enough comfort and friendship. But on the other hand, they already know where we stand. We will work with future leaders from these countries as long as we can. They're mostly under the age of 30. They are young people who um, are able eventually to be the change maker in their communities. And they're the people that we maintain contact with and we seek to help them out. We still have hope for the future. Congress wants us to continue our programs. They fund our programs to do this, but we have this challenge to be able to bring young Russian leaders who are not necessarily in support of this war to the United States to meet their peers around the country. That is something that I'm committed to doing. I wanna keep it there. I wanna keep doing that. Um, but we keep Congress informed and hear back from them of their um, very large and solid support for Ukraine. That's pretty well known and um, pretty obvious. So I think we have challenges in front of us and um, we worry for everyone. So I appreciate this opportunity. And if anyone has a question, I'd be happy to take that. Okay, Jane, thank you for joining us. Um, it, it's, you know, when we start talking about sharp power, <laughs> the soft power of diplomacy and these kinds of exchanges, um, we can't give up with those. I mean, those no. have to continue. Um, we, we do have to close. And so I, Gary and George, your final comments for closing remarks. Well, I, I would um, close by reiterating a thought that I made at the very beginning in a different form. And that is um, in 10 years, 10 or 15 years, when we look back, will we, will we find that it appears that this was an avoidable tragedy or an in inevitable result of Putin's personality. Um, as you know, my, my sense is that it was avoidable. But if you, uh, if, if you think this is Hitler at work, then you would assume it was unavoidable. I would also say I, I wish we could travel in time, 10, 15 years, look back and say, what is happening now? Is this something reasonable or this is another appeasement of another Hitler? And we just relieve horrors of war all over again. Was this avoidable to stop Putin early on? Like potentially we could have Hitler. Or we sit on our hands and do nothing. It's a, a dangerous time. And I really thank you all 
for, for the time and energy today. Um, as, we, as I said earlier, I, the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute will continue uh, its own learning, um, not only about Ukraine or the Baltic states or the histories that are interceding on the moment, um, and um, support, uh, Jane, for, for your work. And so thank you for today. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acasts, or wherever you listen. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. <laughs>